0: I'm going to ask you to turn to the 8th chapter of the book of Jeremiah this evening, Jeremiah chapter 8. I'm going to read, and you're hearing the passage we're going to endeavor to grapple with, and that's uh, verse 4 to verse 12. And we're going to look at this section uh, that begins, that you shall say to them, in verse 4, and it concludes in verse 13, says Yahweh, says the Lord. (coughs) I knew that was coming on excuse me this is a passage of scripture especially when you see it in the original language the English sometimes the translators smooth things out a lot of times uh, translators think they're explainers that their work is to explain what the original meant and they're not really translating it they're looking to explain it sometimes their explanations are good sometimes maybe not so much but um, Isaiah, obvi- I'm sorry, Jeremiah, obviously, is filled with great emotion. The things he's addressing and dealing with are c- critical matters for himself and the times in which he lived. The city of Jerusalem that he loved, uh, the people that he was a part of. I mean, the Babylonian invasion was uh, was coming, and the horrific thing is, the s- reasons for it were totally deserving. The people deserved this judgment that God would bring. Uh, their sins were of the deepest dye. um not only the religious sins of uh, idolatry and apostasy the departure from the living God uh, the injustices they tolerated and committed against the poor and the needy and the orphan and the widow um, but also against the most vulnerable of all of uh, society, their own children uh, bringing their children to places of idolatrous worship where they were slain in sacrifice, killing their offspring for the sake of some supposed greater good that they thought some god would give to them. And certainly this was nothing that Yahweh had ever spoken of, nothing that ever had entered into his mind. And um, Jeremiah is doubtlessly filled with great emotion just with regard to the sins of the people and the circumstances that going to, that's going to bring this great judgment. And in real sense, in this passage I'm going to read, it's almost like it's a tirade that he engages in, coming against the people for the the wickedness and the folly uh, that they were guilty of, that they were fully deserving of God's Wrath because their sins are simply of that great uh, a die, and and it's almost like you know when when you start to wail at somebody, you almost get out of control. So sometimes the words just jumble together, and sometimes the thoughts are incomplete. Um, sometimes it's just like you know you have a machine gun, and you're you're sort of gunning 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 whatever you can get in terms of what these horrific people are doing, and um, so with, in terms of verbal. Uh, a shotgun or a verbal spraying of bullets in their direction, thought upon thought upon thought upon thought is coming forth. And it's, it's difficult to outline. It's difficult to find a unifying theme. And um, the commentators are read, and they all say different things about the, what the main things should be. They all seem to agree that uh, this is an intensely emotion-packed uh, uh, part of uh, the prophecy. Uh, and it's difficult to Outline, it's difficult to um, put all of its elements together. Um, The thought came to me that uh, of the folly of rebellion. It's probably not original to me, it's probably I read something like it somewhere. And uh, also the fact that this folly, this moral wickedness of um, apostasy and rebellion against God is something that reduces us all to fools. And I thought out of expression that sin. Reduces us all to fools. And I said, "That sounds like something Shakespeare said," <laughs> and kind of like you know Hamlet. Where I think Ophelia says in Hamlet, "That conscience doth make uh, cowards of us all." but maybe sin reduces us all to fools. Might have been said by some great uh, uh, writer such as Shakespeare. So I googled it, and uh, sure enough, it was said by John Piper (laughs) something in a book of John Piper where he says sin reduces us all to fools so I have John Piper's backing for the thought and the opinion I think it's something that is much upon Jeremiah's mind as he castigates the people uh, for their great wickedness and their great sins against um, their covenant God Uh, you shall say to them verse 4 of chapter 8 And uh, I should point out here, he's moving from the prose of the previous section, beginning in chapter 7 and verse 1, when God tells him to go up to the stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim the the temple sermon. uh, That came in prose. That's a description of the things Jeremiah did, not in the form of Hebrew poetry, but just an account of what he did and what he said. And um, the temple... um, um, sermon is really verse 1 to verse 15 of chapter 7, and verse 16, he sees the aftermath of the temple sermon, God telling him not to pray for this people, and God giving the, uh, the expression of the valley of slaughter, where the um, high places of Topheth and the crimes that were done in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, when they burnt their sons and daughters uh, in the fire to to, to Molech. Um, This is not part of the temple sermon. I think I need to say that because I read a lot of commentaries that seem to say, well, we're still in the temple sermon. No, I don't think we are. And in fact, even the type of um, literature changes from prose to poetry. Now we're moving into a poetic part um, where he says in verse 4, You shall say to them, um, Yahweh says to Jeremiah, You shall say to them, the people of Judah, Thus says Yahweh, When men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, What have I done? Everyone turns to his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows his times, and the turtle dove swallow and crane. Keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of Yahweh. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of Yahweh. So what wisdom is in them? You see, this sarcasm, this mockery, um, he's looking to display before them the reality of their folly therefore I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors because everyone, uh, everyone is greedy for unjust gain from prophet to priest everyone deals falsely they've healed the wound and this is a reprise of chapter 6 uh, just the same words uh, they've healed the wound of the, my people lightly saying peace peace when there is no peace were they ashamed when they committed abomination No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says Yahweh. The crime of the sin of Judah was, put it simply, they didn't know how well they had it when they remained in a faithful covenant relationship with their covenant God and King. The folly of rebellion against Yahweh is that that rebellion comes in the face of chesed, God's covenant love, God's committed, faithful love that he renders to his people, whom he desires to have as his own, to have exclusive their exclusive allegiance, their exclusive commitment, and the people of Judah refused to remain faithful to that covenant, and hence they came out of the realm of the blessings of the covenant, and they came over under the curses of the covenant the greatest of all of the curses of the Book of Deuteronomy was that the nation would lose the land, that great blessing that God had given that this land that was god 's land he gave to their as their possession as their inheritance. And as he uh, as he used Israel to drive out the Canaanites, when the iniquity of the Amorites had become full, now the iniquity of Judah had become full, and they were going to be dispossessed. They were going to be taken into captivity in a foreign land, in Babylon, uh, as a result of their crimes against uh, the Lord, their covenant God, and their covenant King. I'm using the language of covenant, and it's interesting thing I'm doing that this evening. I'm doing it because, first of all, it does define well God's relationship to the nation of Judah. And I'm also using it in the light of our study in the Sunday School this morning, when I think we've come to view covenant in a way that's not so biblical and not so uh, definitional of God's relationship to his people. You see, the, the idea of a covenant is an idea that gives security. It gives comfort, it gives hope, it gives consolation, it gives encouragement to the people of God that they are loved by this God. This God is not on the warpath against them. He is for them. He's committed to them. He's redeemed them. He's brought them to himself. And it's the greatest of all blessings that Judah possessed to be under that covenant love, under that relationship of, um, of um, God saying, I am a God to you and you will be my people. Uh, unfortunately, the whole discussion of covenant theology is, fa- is, is facing a different agenda. It always seems to me the idea of covenant gets co-opted by people who have some other thing they want to demonstrate or some other thing they want to prove uh, biblically. Uh, the whole matter of covenant theology, I didn't f- complete the thought. Remember, if you were here this morning in the Sunday School, I wrote on the bulletin board, Arminianism and Amoraldianism, and there's a point to that. Because it was really in Holland among the Dutch that the generation that followed the Synod of Dort when Arminians had come and said well we don't like this Reformed Confession we have because it makes too much of divine sovereignty. It makes too much of a God of decree. And we need to really see that this God of decree seems in some ways to be contrary to a God of love. It would seem to be too harsh. And yet some in Holland that were basically in agreement with that because sometimes a strict Calvinistic understanding can seem harsh. We, you don't know, get caught up in decrees and God's plan and God's purpose and, and and forget it's with human beings, made in His image and likeness, loved uh, by Him from eternity. I've loved you with an everlasting love and with loving kindness. I've, I've called you to Myself in love. He predestined us unto the adoption of sons. And that love element, that personal commitment of God to his people could sometimes get lost among what we think of as the machinery of predestinating decree. And um, that can become fairly intimidating. It's one of my great objections to predestination when I first heard it is it sounded so mechanistic. It sounded so much like of a God who had a cold, steely plan and purpose that he was going to exercise in the world. And I didn't see how did that accord with a God of infinite loving kindness and tender mercies and until I got the grips of how scripture framed it, in love this is what he's done for us, in love he has purposed and planned and even though we can't enter into the fullness of the mystery of that plan and the reasons for all of God's purpose yet God has his reasons, he does nothing willy nilly, he does nothing um, just capriciously he, he, he operates in full and total wisdom Uh, But the uh, people who were in Holland during the time when Calvinism was being uh, disapproved of, uh, some of them said, well, let's come up with a way to soften the doctrine of decree. And they centered upon covenant is the idea of that. We can kind of bring in the fact that God freely offers Christ to people in a covenant of grace. Of course, even there, they got caught up with the covenant of redemption, which is purpose. And sometimes their definitions are really run, run, run amok. But what does any of that have to do with the way covenant is expressed in the scripture the covenant does not come in the context of looking to soften down the doctrine and decrees covenant comes in the context of a God of redeeming love a God who comes and rescues a people from slavery and bondage in Egypt who is fulfilling his promises who wants to give assurance to his people that he is with them he will never leave them he will never forsake them they will be his people and hence they are to be loyal to him That's the whole ethos in which covenant comes. It's in that saving relationship. It's in that redemptive activity that God exercises on behalf of his people that he brings them into this relationship of friendship and peace and love and fullness and blessing and land and prosperity and everything that he pours out upon them. And these people had it all. They had it all from the hand of God and they were willing to blow it. They were willing to blow it it's not just the 17th century reformers that made the successes of the reformers that made the mistake of using covenant to be part of an agenda that they were looking to teach. You know, again, the matter that Mike raised this morning really tells us that there are people that are using covenant today. To drive a wedge between Baptists and Presbyterians, and say so that's the major difference between Presbyterians and Baptists is we have a radically different view of covenant, or we don't understand covenant, or we don't believe in the covenant, and so we can't be—we must be closet dispensationalists, or we must be something other than what we think we are—and uh, it's a sad thing. Now, there are people that have used covenant for other things as well. I won't get into all the details. And you know what I'm advocating, folks? As we get into the do- the doctrine of covenant as we find it in Scripture, God loved his this nation. God purposed his grace to this nation. God entered into a relationship with this nation. And this nation turned their heels against him and rebelled and they sought their own things and not his things and they wickedly and defiantly and foolishly carried out their rebellion against the covenant making covenant keeping God who loved them and provided for them and cared for them and the whole emphasis of this section that I read to you tonight it just highlights the folly of Israel's rebellion, Judah's rebellion against their covenant Lord, against their covenant King. And so Jeremiah mounts the podium. He takes the best of Hebrew poetry with all of its images. And he goes on the attack against this wickedness. Against this high-handed folly, this moral evil that the people were guilty of in rebelling against the living God. Now, God sends them upon this errand. God gives them the words. He says, you shall say to them, you shall say to them, is how verse 4 begins. And then verse 12 ends, which says Yahweh. So, Jeremiah is a prophet indeed. He's God's mouthpiece, bringing God's sentiments, God's attitudes, God's uh, 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 truth to bear upon the sin of the nation and the Lord sends him to do this uh, by means of asking a series of probing searching questions searching probing questions designed to expose the folly of their apostasy, the folly of their rebellion and so you have these questions, how can you say in verse 8 What wisdom is there is is in them? Verse nine. Again it's castigating them. What wisdom is there in this? How can you say this? What are you thinking? What kind of foolishness is this? Again. Sin reduces us all to fools. Were they ashamed? When they committed abominations, in verse 12. Verse 4 begins with the probing question. You shall say to them, thus says Yahweh. And here, I, I, I would like to put all this into different points this evening. But the thought is just too... Everywhere. <laughs> just It just... Is not reducible, I think, to compartmentalize point one, point two, point three. It's all this attack, going after the people, castigating them for their foolish thoughts, their foolish understandings, their deceitful ways. And um, so I'm just going to do it in the way of sort of a running commentary and then look to make uh, some applications at the end. Um, well, actually, I have one application I wrote down. Maybe I'll have a couple of others as we move on. But let's, be, let's just begin. Um, you shall say to them, and this is a very interesting image that all of us can relate to. Um, in fact, in the news just recently, we could relate to it with the man in high office in our own country. When men fall, do they not rise again? Uh, President Biden this week went to speak at the um, Air Force Academy, I believe it was. And uh, they said there was some sandbag on the podium that he tripped over and he fell. When the man falls, do they not rise again? Well, I I think the news kind of lost it, the fact that he got quickly to his feet, a little bit of assistance, but we've also seen him go up the steps of Air Force One, and he's made a tumble, and then he quickly rises up again. And, you know, that's an interesting thing as well, that the man at 80 years old is able to make recoveries from these falls, but at 80 years old, you tend to get a little bit imbalanced. In fact, even in my own walking, I realized that I was finding myself uh, every now and again getting very imbalanced. And I went online, I got an exercise to kind of strengthen uh, that uh, part of my my gait as as you walk um, that causes your toes to rise up well. uh, Because that's one of the problems. When your toes are down to the ground, you'll stumble you stumble. Especially when you get old and you, you lose some of the muscle tone. Uh, that's an area of the body that needs to be strengthened. I won't get into the muscles in the legs that control that. But there's actually ways when you get older you just will stumble. But even young men fall. Um, Isaiah 40 speaks about that. When young men utterly fall. And yet they'll mount up as wings like eagles with the strength that the covenant God of Israel gives to his people. But when you fall, you don't lay there. Unless you're completely incapacitated and can do nothing to rise up from the fall, you quickly rise up to your feet again. You don't just go and fall down in the dirt and eat dirt for the rest of the day. Or just stay there until somebody carts you off. On a, unless you're physically unable. When men fall, they will rise again. He says, if one turns away. And I think this idea of turns away is that you turn away from the place of your normal abode. You turn away from your home. You go out in the open air to take a walk, or you go out to uh, pick uh, berries, or you go out to uh, go to the store. You don't turn away from the place of your normal residence, your normal place where you live, in order never to come back home again. When you leave, you to come back home. If you if you turn away from your home, does he not return? Do you not go back to the place where you're warm and your your family is and your uh, securities are and your provisions are? No, we go back home. We go back home. But what people will normally do when you fall, you get Magoth, But when you go out from your home, you come back again. Israel. Who had fallen away from the Lord, they had backslidden in heart, they had turned a deaf ear to God's word, they fell into sin. They were determined fully to lie down in that sin. Not to get up again. You know the proverb, when the proverb says if a man falls you know seven times a day, the Lord will lift him up. God is able to lift up His people who have fallen. These people didn't want to get lifted up; they wanted to live in their sin, to lay in their sin, even to die in their sin, and they were not going to get back up again. When they went away from the place of safety and security in their relationship to their covenant God, did they come to the realization, "Enough is enough"? the place of safety and security and provision is in union with my God to go back to him to return back to him well no they weren't doing this they wouldn't do the normal things that normal people do when they fall or when they turn away from the place of safety and security and so he asked the question why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding that's their problem They were turning away from God with an eternal falling away. It's an interesting thing that the words that are used here for for backsliding and turning away, it's all the same word. It's the word shub in the Hebrew language. And it's a word that oftentimes means repentance. So there's a sense in which in moral things we're always turning somewhere. We're either turning away from God or we're turning back to God. And we're moving in some direction with respect to God. Sin moves us away from God. Take heed, lest there be in any one of you, the Hebrews 3 says, an evil heart of unbelief in what? Falling away from the living God. And even if it's in imperceptible degrees, sin can lead us to fall away, to shrink back. There's another language of the book of Hebrews. And the thing we need to be constantly doing is returning. Is not turn away, to turn back. Not to shoove away from the Lord, but to shoove towards the Lord. To ever be turning back to Him. But this people, instead of turning back to God, had turned away from God in a perpetual turning away. In a perpetual backsliding away from Yahweh. And they did this Because they were not about to be corrected by God. They were not about to have his word give them light and understanding, to give them to see the reality of their sinfulness and their waywardness. Because they were holding fast, he says, to deceit. They were self-deceived and they loved to have it so. It says earlier on in this book that the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests bear rule by their own means and my people delight to have it so. We come to the place where we're, we're willing to be de- deceived. We want to be deceived. We don't want to know what the facts are. We want to know if our own opinion gets confirmed. We want to know if our own prejudices get supported. We, and we don't want to be corrected. And we fall in imperceptible ways, away from the standard of truth and righteousness found in the Scriptures. We let our culture, our at, the atmosphere in which we breathe and live, uh, just lead us to have opinions that may not be true, verified by God's Word. But it's our opinions, and so we'll hold to them. It's our beliefs, and we'll be steadfast in them. Don't bring me any for any further light. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I know enough. And so we don't want to be challenged and we don't want to be corrected. We love the pathway of deceit. Why would anybody want to live a life of deceit? Why would anybody want to be willingly deceived? There's a picture that Paul gives in the book of Titus that bears upon this whole matter of loving deceit of living in deceit and just not caring that we're, we're lied to and we're lied to others and and lies are the main thing that structure our very our very um, atmosphere in which we live and move and, 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 and have our being rather than God and his truth, it's lies and deception that uh, govern our, our ways um, listen to what he says about who, what we once were prior to the gospel, prior to the coming of, of the grace of God, he says. For we ourselves were once foolish. And again, foolishness doesn't mean intellectual um, um, a failure to be have a have a high IQ. It's nothing to do with IQ. I'm sorry. Titus chapter three and verse three is where we are. Did I say Titus 2? I think it's said Titus 2. I apologize. Titus 3. I don't want to be so you don't like to correct my indiscretions. Because I of times direct you to the wrong chapter. Um, and I need to be aware of that. But anyway, he says here, For we ourselves were once foolish. He's describing Judah. He's describing the Judah that Jeremiah is speaking to. We were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated hated by others, and hating one another. Um, I thought it was here. It said d- deceived and being deceived. It might be just a different translation. But I'm sorry. It does say in the New King James in the King James version about being, de- but yes, deceived, uh, deceiving others and being deceived we love to be we love deception we love the lie we love to have confirmation and our own opinions whether they're based on anything or not whether they're based on god's word or not and so they hold fast at deceit and they refuse to return why return we're okay we're fine things are good you know we're having you know we have a a cotton and, and, and three square meals a day so um, we don't need the Lord we don't need to return to him but God says I paid attention and I've listened but they have not spoken rightly I've been hearing what they're saying what they say to one another what they say in their homes what they say in their own hearts I'm hearing their, their self speak how they speak to themselves and the point of it is, they've not spoken rightly. They've not spoken in accordance with my counsel. They've not sought my counsel. They've not humbled themselves before me. They've not said, teach me, Lord, from your word. Give me light and understanding. And they haven't said, open thou my heart, that I might perceive wonderful things out of your law. They're not thinking right. They're not speaking right. And no man against you, no man relents of his evil. No man turns away from his evil. He's fully persuaded that I'm on the right course. I'm fully persuaded that at the end of the day, I'm going to be benefited by this deception. I'm going to be benefited by this perpetual backsliding. I'm going to be benefited by constant turning away from the living God. No man says, What have I done? There's no self examination, there's no taking your life and viewing it in the light of God's truth. And saying, where have I gone astray? Again, the words in the Greek for sin, hamartia, is a word that means to miss the mark. There's a similar word in the Hebrew that uh, is also translated as sin of transgression, going against the course, the right course, um, moving out of the way. Uh, missing the mark this is what sin itself is God set the mark he set the standard he's pointed the way he's given us his counsel he's given us his testimony he's given us his truth he's given us his instruction it's all to be found in his word and no one wants to take their lives and measure it up against the standards of God's own words there's nothing in the way of self-examination there's nothing in the way of uh, an examined life i trying to think who it was that said an unexamined life is not worth living. Uh, that might have been Plato or someone else, but uh, it goes back a long way. That the importance of having a life that is, reflects upon our, our ways, the things that we are doing. Uh, to be self-aware, to be self-conscious, to be conscious of our ways as believers and how we conform or do not conform uh, to God's ways and God's truth. Righteousness is conformity to God's ways. He is the righteous God. His law sets out the pathway of righteousness. And for us not to reflect upon our ways and how they coincide or do not coincide with God's ways is simply, it's it's folly, it's ludicrous. It's saying, I don't care. I don't care to live pleasing to God. I don't care to walk in paths of truth. I'm, I'm content with laying in my sin and falling away from the living God, moving far away from the place of security. And this place of safety. He says, everyone turns to his own course. Everybody has their own truth. It's my truth. It's my course. It's my way. And we think that's enlightenment. And God says, no, that's rebellion. That's rebellion. To turn to your own course. And he gives image, comes from warfare. Warfare. The war horse who plunges headlong into the battle. You wonder how in the world do you get a horse to go into battle? To plunge headlong into a battle. Well you put blinders on him, that's what you do. He doesn't see what's up ahead. The blinders are over his eyes, so he plunges right headlong as the rider directs him. Not thinking, I'm moving it to a place of great danger. Punching headlong into this battle. Art a lesson from the horse. Get the blinders off. Don't punch headlong into the battle. See things as they really are. Have your eyes enlightened by the word of God's truth. To see your ways and how they coincide or do not coincide with the ways of the Lord. And then take a lesson from the birds. He says in Verse 7. The stork, the turtle dove, the swallow, the crane. Uh, I'm always amazed at, at watching birds. Uh, I'm amazed at watching formations of birds and just saying, how in the world did they do that? How in the world did they keep in those straight lines as they fly? I even saw a group of geese, Canadian geese, they're crossing the road and man oh man they were lockstep with one another that's so funny it's so cute watching them you know they waddle and, but they're all in lockstep left right left right left right left right in formation <laughs> there's something instinctual about that something that they do just because they're part of this this flock of geese and so they're going to be as they walk in formation to do what mom does because mom leads them along they're going to all be doing exactly what she does and unvarying. There's a kind of wisdom in what the birds do by instinct. The instinct that God's placed in their hearts so that they know when to fly south to get out of the winter when autumn comes. And they make their journey to Capistrano or make their journey to... uh, or they leave Capistrano (laughs) or they leave the place where the winter weather is coming. I mean... I should have been a bird. <laughs> <I know. laughs> That's my instinct. Let me go south in the winter. I don't want to stay in cold weather. But even the stork in the heavens knows her times. Knows when there's time to go to the place of safety. No, God's given them the instinct to do that very thing. The turtle dove, the swallow, the crane, keep the time of their coming. They know when winter's coming. They know when it's time to go to their summer home in the south and find refuge there away from the storms that are coming. Horses and birds know far more than human beings guided by their sin, the sins that reduces us all to fools. Isaiah says something similar in chapter one of his prophecy. Go learn from the birds. Go learn from the animal kingdom. Isaiah chapter one and verse three. He says the ox knows its owner. The ox knows the hands that feeds it. He knows who who his owner is. He knows who's bringing the food day by day. The donkey knows its master's crib. He knows who's providing the, the, the victuals in the crib for the donkey to eat but Israel does not know my people do not understand they're just lacking in understanding they don't know the God who's blessed them the God who's provided for them the God who's kept his, his, his promises to them and they've simply stopped caring and they th- now think they can live without him they could keep the land without the the God who owns the land being the one they seek and follow and submit themselves to to be instructed by his words and be instructed by his laws my people do not know the rules of the Lord and again it's a difficult word that's found there and how, how it's to be translated it's not quite certain uh, but it's, it's that God has laid out uh, the path for his people even as he's given to the The bird's instincts to know where to move to a place of safety and and given a a war horse the the knowledge that if he's seeing without blinders, you just don't go into the fray and look to go headlong into the battle. But God's people didn't know. They weren't considering. They did not know the rules of the Lord, the ways of the Lord, the truth that comes from God. And then he asked the question, How then can you say we are wise? How can you say you're wise when you're cutting yourself off from the source of all wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the proverb says. You're cutting yourself off from the fear of God. It's his word that teaches us the ways, uh, 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 teaches wisdom. Remember how in the book of Deuteronomy it says that uh, the nations will say what people is like this people that has a God who's among them and has laws that are so just and laws that are so wise The very nations of the world will be jealous because the God of Israel is a God who directs His people in paths that are good. He guides us in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. He leads us in a path of plenty and blessing and fullness and joy. How can you say we're wise? How can you say the law of the Lord is with us? What deception is that? Why? Because you have people who are professional scribes in Israel who say, we're the teachers. We're the ones who know God's truth. And you never evaluate what they're saying. You never hold up what they're saying to the light of God's own words. You just take it by faith. They're the, they're the religious professionals. They're studying the scriptures, so whatever they say, will do. I was a member of a church one time. There was one set of teachings. The church had sort of been founded by and then a the whole bunch of us came along and we said no that teaching is a little bit insufficient and we need to replace it with this other teaching and somebody in the congregation said well you know what's the big deal we had one t- pastor that came and taught us that teaching that different kind of teaching and he supported it with Bible verses said, this is what you to believe you, know, you guys are coming along and you're saying no this is what you to believe and you're supporting it by Bible verses so you know, what's the big deal it can't be that big deal if everybody has Bible verses to support it The problem is it's diametrically opposite teaching you're giving. So where's the spirit of wisdom that says let me take what they're saying and measure it up against the counsel of God we find in Scripture? Where's the sense of responsibility to say that I have a responsibility to my God to make certain that the things I'm being taught are things that are in accordance with His Word? I'm not just taking it on the professional preacher say-so who well may be in it for as... uh, Jeremiah is going to tell us they're in it for greed they're in it for themselves they're not in this business of religious profession for the purposes of the glory of, of the God of Israel or the good of the people of Judah behold the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie they've taken God's word and they've made it into a lie they've twisted it they've perverted it they've bent it out of shape And what you're getting is not the pure word of God. You're getting the words of men who've adulterated the purity of the counsel that God himself has given. The pens of the scribes has made the law of the Lord that they're supposed to be studying, they're supposed to be experts about, they're supposed to be teaching, and they've turned it into a lie. What you're getting from them is not the truth. You're getting a lie from them, and you're not... Aware enough to say, no, no, something's wrong here. This doesn't accord with what our fathers have taught. Remember, I mean, we had this whole Reformation in the time of Josiah. They brought out the book of Deuteronomy. They began to read the scriptures. We began to make all of these reforms. And it was all based upon the word that Hilkiah found in the temple. The word of God was recovered. And now we're doing this Reformation in the light of the word of God. Now, just because Josiah's dead and a new king's taken over, we're just gonna lose all that? We're gonna go back on all that? What was all that reform about? God's word hasn't changed just because the king has changed. God's word hasn't changed just because there's a new scribe in town that's putting coal to to parchment and saying this is what the truth is? Be careful of those scribes. Be careful of the religious professionals. They may well take God's truth and twist it and distort it and turn it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. The sages among you. The people who are supposed to be your elders. Who are supposed to know God's word and counsel. And instruct others in it. They shall be dismayed, and they shall be taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of Yahweh. So what wisdom is in them? See, something of like the passion of Jeremiah coming against a people, a culture, governed by sages and governed by scribes that are, what Jesus said, they were the blind leading the blind. Both of them are going to fall into a ditch. What's the, where's the wisdom in following this? Where's the wisdom in giving any credence to any kind of movement that's not richly, deeply rooted and grounded in the Word of God's truth? No wisdom's to be found there. They may call themselves sages, they may say they're scribes, but if they're taking the truth of God and twisting it into a lie, if they're taking the Word of God and actually rejecting it, rather than submitting to it, Where's their wisdom in any of this to be found? It's folly. Sin reduces us all to folly. Thank you, John Piper. Sin reduces us all to folly. Then Jeremiah speaks of the judgment that they will receive. These truth twisters, these distorters, these people that take God's word and they stretch it out to their own purposes and their own designs. Therefore, I will give their wives to others. This is speaking about the wives being taken into captivity. Their husbands will be put to the sword. Likely, unless they're also brought into captivity, they're going to lose their families in this whole invasion that the Babylonians will bring. And not just they're going to lose their wives. They're going to lose their fields to the conquerors. They'll be dispossessed. They'll be brought into a strange land. Brought away from the comforts of God's land. Because they've not been faithful to the Lord of the land. They've not been faithful to their, the land grant that God gave them. That said, you be different from those Canaanites. You don't re- replicate the sins of the Canaanites. You follow me. You don't... Follow the customs of the Canaanites or the customs of the Egyptians. You follow my word and will and my counsel that I've given you in my laws. And then he gives one of these I use the expression merism. I've spoken of that before. What a merism is it's like from A to Z is all the numbers in between or the letters in between. Um, And you have a merism here uh, where he says um, from prophet to I'm sorry yeah from prophet to priest I'm sorry back it up because from the least to the greatest probably prophet to priest and everyone in between every other religious leader in between but from the least to the greatest and every other gradation of people in the in the nation everyone is greedy for unjust gain from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Deception, lies, untruths, twisted truths. God's word bent out of shape. These people just doing what they're doing for their own advantage, their own glory, their own designs. And in so twisting God's truth, the result is they've hurt themselves their wives are going to be taken away. Their lands are going to be taken away. And they've not benefited anybody else either. They've healed the wound of my people lightly. Saying peace, peace when there is no peace. They say don't listen to Jeremiah. He's talking about judgment coming. What judgment? We haven't seen it. We don't see Babylonians entering the, our land. Everything is going well. It's swimmingly. We're doing real, really well. Not knowing what's on the horizon. This they're all consumed with themselves. They're all self-absorbed, self-interested. He concludes this castigation of the people for the folly of rebellion and apostasy against their covenant God and King by saying in verse 12, were they ashamed when they committed abomination Again, it was the abomination of the peoples of the land that Israel dispossessed them. But now they're committing those very abominations. The answer is no, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Again, that's also repeated, I think, in chapter 3. It mentions that, that they didn't know how to blush. There was no sense of shame for all of the enormity of the evils that they had done. They just silenced their consciences. And therefore they shall fall among the fallen when I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says Yahweh. Again, folks, we don't go to Jeremiah for a prayer to a praise session where we get elevated in our spirits to bless the Lord. No. This is a passage of Scripture that is designed is not to elate us and to make us joyful and to make us happy but yet it serves a purpose of warning it serves a purpose of warning because we are all whether we understand it daily or not moving either away from God or towards Him we're turning we're turning we're turning away or we are returning to Him we don't remain static in the Christian life Sin has that hardening effect that the writer of the Hebrews speaks about. Beware lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But encourage one another day by day and as long as it's called today lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin's the great deceiver. Sin just simply fools us. And those believers (coughs) excuse me I don't believe our hearts are deceitful any longer. We have a new heart. We're regenerate people. You know, the fact is, the old Adam is still in us. The remnants of sin are still in us. And we still can get tripped up. We still can be deceived. We can still think we're doing well when we're not doing well we just have a need to recognize that we need to check ourselves we need to examine ourselves not to over examine ourselves not to view ourselves with great with 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 a morbid introspection where everything we do just rises up to condemn us but with a sober sense of just where are we in our relationship to this covenant lord are we returning home on a regular basis confessing our sins to him are we getting up when we fall and going back to Him with a little bit of our skin, knees, skinned elbows, our pride wounded, be a coming back to God and renewing our love to Him and our commitment to Him. In a real sense, we need to come away from this section with the recognition that in all of our lives there needs to be less of us and more of Him. Less of us and more of him. That's really the problem here. All these people were out for themselves. They were self interested, self absorbed. They were primed for deception because they thought it was in their interests. They were not concerned about the glory of the eternal God. They were not concerned about obedience to his will, word and will. It really didn't matter. It's religion. Hey, so you know, we're doing church, we're instructing people, and really the important thing is the bottom line. Are we making enough money? Are we are we having influence? And so much of that is all absorbed with who and what we are, our image, what people think of us, not what people think of him. We need to be concerned about ourselves less and concerned about our covenant Lord more. And that's the only way out of this descent into sin, of being made a fool of, Because sin just has that ability to abase us all. Sin has that ability to reduce us all to folly. If we won't be fools, we need to be wrapped up in our God. We need to be saturated. Our minds and our hearts and our wills to be saturated with His Holy Word. That's why the blessed man of the first psalm meditates on the law of the Lord day and night used to go to church down in Trinity in the old days when Al Martin would preach and he'd bring those one hour sermons and we used to have, I think I've told you this before that dry cleaner is down in New Jersey offered the one hour Martinizing it was some kind of a process, I guess, to do dry cleaning. It was called a one-hour Martinizing, and, and we we would say, "Well, that's what we're getting when we go to Trinity. We get a one-hour Martinizing. We would hear the hour sermon of Pastor Martin expounding the Word of God." But you see, it, it, it could, it should never have been just a Martinizing. It has to be a Jesusizing. It has to be be brought under the the governance and and the the uh, the Fragrance and the arresting attention of the one who is our Lord and our God, the one who has saved us, and to bringing us closer to him, to have his, wor- his word, his, his, his will, his ways be the principal thing that guides us and governs us and instructs us that our understandings would be honed and tuned in to divine truth and divine counsel the simple fact is it's so easy to be deceived. It's so easy to be self-deceived. It's so easy to think we're doing well when we're not doing well at all. And we need God's Word, like this Word, that probes us, that raises these questions. We ask ourselves, who are we trusting? Are we trusting the pastor? I don't want you to distrust me, guys, but don't make me the full object of your trust. Says, so As long as Pastor Gordon teaches us God's Word, okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll overlook all the things he doesn't do if he teaches the word of God that's fine but make sure I'm teaching the word of God make sure it's not just a, 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 the product of my own imagination or my own creativity or my own whatever it is that I think I, I'm doing uh, I'm, I'm trying to be faithful to the word of the Lord as best as I know my own heart but, uh, but you know, hold my feet to the, you know, to the fire and, and make certain that what I'm doing is the right thing and not the wrong thing because we're all subject to God's word, and we all need to be helping one another to remain subject to God's word. That's why that exhortation in Hebrews is to encourage each other, be encouragers of one another, and to do it not just uh, not just sporadically, but do it regularly. He says, day by day, as long as it's called today, lest any be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So, right in the Hebrews, concluded his his message to those who, to whom he wrote by saying suffer this word of exhortation let us suffer this word of warning that comes to us from the prophet of Je- prophecy of Jeremiah let's see the debasing power of sin what sin does how it ripens us for, for loss it ripens us for judgment it ripens us for every bad thing how sin just has that ability to reduce us all to fools And let's stay out of the pathway of apostasy and rebellion against our covenant God and King by ever making more of Him, less of ourselves, following His ways, His will, His words, being saturated with the reality of His grace and kindness to us in the Lord Jesus, that we would be a people that will be ever shoving in the right direction not away from the Lord, but towards the Lord, ever returning to Him. When we fall, ever returning to Him. When we leave the reservation and go off into some little strange path of our own, always coming back, humbled for the for the experience, be it thankful that we do have a God who forgives and who cleanses. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can spend time in this portion of Scripture and Certainly be warned of the deceitful nature of sin. Be warned of the need to have our own lives come under the governance of your word and to be scrutinized by your own eye. Lord, you don't call us to do that in order to overly oppress us or to put a yoke upon us that neither we or our fathers could bear, but to have that liberating sense that we are moving in the right direction. We're moving towards you and not away from you. We're ever coming closer to the living God and not by imperceptible degrees sliding away into our own um, things, our own will, our own ways. But we would ever be renewed in a vigorous commitment to you, our covenant God and our King. So we pray that you'd hear our prayers. We pray you'd bless your word. We pray that you'd Help us to go to our homes tonight thankful that we've been among the people of God today, that we have looked into scripture today and benefit us, we pray, not just today, but in the days to come, that we might live more holy lives for you. We ask you to hear our prayers and to bless us as your people as we come to you. In Jesus' name, amen.